Well, as we come to open God's word together this morning, let's bow and ask for the Lord's blessing upon our time. Almighty God, we indeed bow before you, the one who sovereignly reigns over all, the one who is perfectly good and righteous, the one who does all that he pleases. We praise your name because it is good and because your steadfast love endures forever. And that through your son, Jesus Christ, we are able to be recipients of your love. Oh, Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your generosity to us. Even having your word is a manifestation of that generosity. And I pray that as we open it this morning, that you would open our eyes to see the wonderful truths that you have before us and that you might cause us to turn our hearts more towards Christ, that we might live more faithfully for him. It's in his name that we pray, amen. amen. On March 21st, 1942, General Douglas MacArthur was leaving his post in the Philippines and as he did so, he promised the people there that he would come back with the now infamous words, I shall return. Those were bold words in, those day, in that day. Imperial Japan had just invaded the Philippines the day after Pearl Harbor. And the American military that was stationed there was then faced with a choice. MacArthur was determined to stand, but at the order of President Roosevelt, MacArthur and his family was then had to escape to Australia. It's in the process of him leaving that he then promised the Filipino people that he would return. And again, this was a, a bold prediction. It was bold because he really had no evidence that he indeed would return. A, this statement merely represented a very strong desire and a very uh, strong confidence in the American military to enable them to come back and to liberate the island. But it was merely, at best, a very strong dream and desire of MacArthur to return. He had no confidence 100, with 100% accuracy that he indeed would return to the island of the Philippines. In fact, what kind of hope would you say that the Filipino people and the uh, uh, American military there left upon the island uh, that he would return? They could certainly believe that this leader had their best interests at heart. They could believe that he was going to try all that he could and all that was humanly possible to get back, fight their way back to those islands. But they could not know with 100% certainty that he indeed would come back and that they indeed would be liberated. Thankfully, his prediction came true on October 20th, 1944, when he arrived again with the Allied forces to liberate the island nation. Now, just like Douglas MacArthur promised to return so too, Jesus Christ has promised to return back here to earth. He currently is in heaven, having ascended there after his resurrection. 
and he's promised to not remain there forever, but to return back to this planet. But there's a major difference between the prediction of General MacArthur and the prediction of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not just wishing that he comes back. He's, he's not just hoping he's, he'll come back. He's not just saying that he will try as hard as he can to come back. No, it's a settled fact that he will return. We can wait with 100% accuracy, 100% certainty that Jesus Christ indeed will return to this planet. It's a settled fact because he has all power and authority. He is sovereign. And when he promises, when he purposes to do something, he has the power to carry it out. And nothing can stand in his way. So when Jesus says he will return, we can have 100% certainty that he will indeed do that. And so because of that, we as his people, as his followers, wait with hope. We wait with a confident expectation that he indeed will come back. This isn't a wishful crossing of the fingers, hoping that it proves to be true someday. No, we can bank our lives upon it, that Jesus is returning. And one of the places that Jesus speaks about his return to this earth is the passage that we've been looking at in Luke chapter 17. And I invite you to turn there, if you're not there already, to Luke chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can find our passage on the Bible that's in the pew directly in front of you on page 1042. 1042. Hope is one of the defining pieces of Christian doctrine. Particularly hope in the future that is to come for the believer, the future that will come, the glorious future that comes at the coming of Christ. This is not just that we live in some wishful world as, as followers of Christ, but no, the church is defined by a blessed hope. Paul describes this in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, that we have a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, our hope in our future inheritance that comes at the coming of Christ is to so define us that it is to stand in sharp contrast to the hopelessness of the world around us. You'll remember in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says that we are to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. Defense for the hope. There is to be such hope that is to be witnessed by those around us that people ask, why do you have hope? How is it that you can have hope in this world? And we should have a quick and ready, let me tell you why I, we, I have hope. We're to give a defense for that hope. Our passage this morning in Luke 17 is going to help to strengthen our hope. Last week we looked at, in this first part of awaiting the kingdom's arrival, at setting our eyes upon Christ. Today we're going to look at setting our hope upon Christ. And we'll see this in verses uh, 26 through 37. But... For our reading this morning, I'm going to pick up in verse 22 and we'll read to the end of verse 37. So follow along as I read, beginning in verse 22. 
And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They will be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. In this text, and particularly in verses 26 through 37, we're going to see three reasons believers in Jesus Christ can have hope while we wait for his return. Three reasons that we as believers in Christ can have hope while we wait for Jesus Christ to return. And first, so first, number one, verses 26 through 30, we can, we see here that we can have hope while we wait because Christ will save us from sudden judgment. We have hope today because we know in that future day Christ will save us from sudden judgment. Verses 26 through 30. And in these verses, he gives us two illustrations. Two illustrations that describe the time leading up to and including his return. The first illustration is the illustration of Noah and his generation. A story, no doubt, you're familiar with, Noah and the flood. Notice verse 26, he makes a clear comparison between the days of Noah and the days of the Son of Man when Christ returns. Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. The comparison couldn't be more clear. Just as it was in that day, it will be in the future day. So we can see what Jesus lays out here in the illustration of Noah and in the illustration of Lot, what it will be like on the earth when Jesus returns. He reminds us that in verse 27 of what the activities the people were doing on the earth at the time of Noah. And he says that they were eating and drinking. They were marrying and being given in marriage. Now this is not meant to be an exhaustive list. This is meant to be a representative list that simply shows some of the activities that these people were doing and carrying on with in their daily lives. And that's exactly the point. They were carrying on with their normal daily activities. And there's even in these, I think, an air of celebration, right? 
the, the mention of marriage and being given in marriage, that, that they were carrying on with a, with a carefree sense of life. They woke up that morning that Noah entered the, the ark and they were headed to their friend's wedding and looking forward to a great reception party afterward. Not being aware of what was coming. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is making. These people were carrying, up, carrying on with their normal everyday activities as if everything was fine, as if everything was normal. They were unaware that judgment was coming. And why were they unaware of the judgment? It's because they lived their lives unconcerned for God and unprepared for him. They lived their lives unconcerned for God and unprepared for him. Now Jesus in this, these verses here doesn't particularly call out their uh, moral degeneracy, the, the immorality of the people at that time. We can go back to Genesis chapters 6 to, uh, Genesis 6 to, to read of the, the way that wickedness had spread amongst humanity at that time. But I believe that, that that wickedness is implied even in these verses, right? Because we know that the, the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus is assuming that they already know the basic narrative. He says, you remember that story about Noah? Well, they were carrying on with their activities and in fact engaging in great immoral activities, living out of the sinfulness of their hearts. And because of that, they wanted, they loved their sin, they lived in their sin, and God then judged them because of that. These people live with no reference to their creator at all. They essentially stiff-armed their creator, said, I don't want, anything, I don't want you, anything to do with you. I want to live my life how I want to live it. And God in his sovereign power saw fit to judge that generation with the flood. Notice that it, these activities carried on very, all the way up until the day, it says, when, until the day when Noah entered the ark. They didn't even slow down. But just as the humanity at that time was judged with the flood, so on the other side was that God preserved his own people. You remember that he saved Noah and his family. So in the midst of the judgment, in the midst of the flood wiping out every living thing upon the earth, God preserved his people in the ark. And so we have here this juxtaposition between judgment and salvation. Judgment of the unrighteous and salvation of those whom God has saved. Now let me just make a, a side note here that Jesus believes in the historicity of the Genesis flood. I know it's common today in scientific uh, knowledge to disregard what the Bible says regarding the worldwide flood of Noah. But the Bible is very clear in Genesis 6 through 8 that this took place and this was part of God's judgment upon the planet. And Jesus here affirms that this was an actual event. Just as Noah and the flood was an actual event, so too his return will be an actual event. It wasn't just a mythical Hebrew tale. 
Now just like God did in the days of Noah, so he will do in the days of the Son of Man. When Jesus comes, he will judge the world. And he will not use water this time, but it will be with fire. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But friends, the hope of the Christian is that Jesus will save us from this judgment. Just like Noah was saved in his day through the ark, so we will be saved when Jesus returns through him. He is our safety and our refuge. He is our ark of safety. He is our shelter in the time of judgment. And so church, we do not need to fear as the day of judgment draws near. For when he returns, we who have trusted in his blood to cleanse and his power to save us will find a great refuge in our Savior. He will not go back on his word. He has promised to save us and indeed he will do that. We need not doubt his word. We can trust every promise that is laid out there. Jesus further makes this point by noting the case of Lot. You'll remember that story from our Old Testament as well. He mentions this in verse 28. Look at it. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Very similarly, the people of Sodom were carrying on with normal everyday activities. They were unconcerned with God and unprepared for him. And just like before, it mentions the eating and drinking, but this adds some other activities you'll notice. There's buying and selling. There's planting and building. More occupational activities, things that they were carrying on with their, their everyday. They were engaging in business. They were planting their fields for a future harvest. They were building buildings. Now this story is also told in Genesis uh, chapter 18 and 19. They tell the story of Sodom along with the neighboring cities of the region such as Gomorrah. You often hear those two cities put together in, in the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah. And they were known for their unrestrained immorality. God himself said of those cities, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. The immorality was, was illustrated even as God sent his angels in the appearance of men to bring the judgment upon that city. These angels appearing as men went in and tried to rescue Lot and his family and bring them out so that then they could bring down the, the sulfur and the fire from heaven. But as these, these angels, as in the appearance of men, were, had entered the city, had gone into the house of Lot, the, it says all the men of the city gathered together and were pounding at the door of Lot's house seeking to engage in a homosexual rape of, of these angels. And in fact, they almost broke the door down, the text says, because of their lust until the angel struck them with blindness and they could no longer carry out their sinful ends. And so Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth, had determined that he was going to destroy the city and its inhabitants. But the people of Sodom were clueless about the destruction that was coming. But 
God in his timing and by his word sent down fire and sulfur from heaven and destroyed that city in the entire region. In fact, the text seems to indicate that previous to this event that, that the region of the Jordan Rift Valley around what is, we know today as the Dead Sea was a place of, of lush uh, plants and animal uh, there was a, almost like a Garden of Eden down there in that region. But through this judgment, God scorched the area. And in fact, today, you can go to this region in the southern part of the Dead Sea and you can still find sulfur balls that are found embedded in the sediment, sediment that is there and uh, 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 something that is very unique from found anywhere else upon the planet. You can search YouTube and see some examples of that. But through this mention of the story of Lot, Jesus' point is made yet again. He's mentioned Noah, he mentions Lot. The point is this, is that the righteous are saved before the unsuspecting wicked are destroyed. The wicked people of Noah's day and Lot's city were carrying on with their daily activities without a thought for the judgment that God would bring. Lot, in fact, tried to warn his sons-in-law he went to them and said, hey, quick, get out of the city. God's going to judge this city. And they laughed at him because they thought he was joking. And that basically sums up what the rest of the city and what the rest of the people in Noah's day, they laughed when they saw Noah building a huge boat. What are you building a boat for? They didn't want to believe that their creator could bring a judgment upon them. But folks, Jesus has made it clear here in our text that this reality of humanity in Noah's day and Lot's day is the very state of humanity when Jesus returns. When he returns and inaugurates the day of the Lord, people on this planet will be living unconcerned with God and unprepared for him. They will be going about their daily activities thinking everything is fine. However, they have failed to do what is most important and that is prepare their own soul for the arrival of the Lord. There is a reckoning that is coming and humanity in their sinfulness doesn't want to face that reckoning, doesn't want to think that that is true, wants to laugh it off and excuse it in a myriad of ways. But friends, we stand upon the truthfulness of God's word that stands forever, that there is, is an indeed reckoning coming from man, for man. And so Jesus says that just as it was in the days of Noah and Lot, so it will be in his day when he is revealed, verse 30. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. I see that here is a clear affirmation that when Jesus comes back, there will be vast unbelief and rampant wickedness upon this planet. And therefore, I believe Jesus' words here, as an aside, are a strong refutation of a view known as postmillennialism. Postmillennialism teaches that Jesus will return to a Christianized globe, that through the church, the gospel will continue to win nations to Christ. And so when Jesus returns to earth, he will find a vastly converted planet. But I believe that these verses, along with others, indicate that Jesus will return not to vast belief, but to vast unbelief and wickedness. But friends, in these words that Jesus gives us, there's a warning that we need to listen to today. Some of you even here today refuse to believe the warning from the Lord, tending to think that this day of reckoning will not come. You think you can carry on with your life. 
You think you can live life your own way. You think you can carry on with your plans that you have for your life. The great things you want to do, you want to buy, you want to sell, you want to marry, be given in marriage with no regard for the Lord. You think that just as you got up yesterday and lived your day and everything was fine and today you're living and everything's fine that tomorrow's going to be the same way and every day after that. But friends, that's the same mistake that the people in Noah's day and the people in Lot's day had. Is that they thought that they could carry on in their disregard for the Lord and think that everything would be fine. And Jesus makes it clear that there will be a day when he is revealed and judgment will come. And so I exhort you here listening this morning to not neglect Jesus' words, to recognize that his return will be a surprise. His return will come unannounced, will catch people off guard. Humanity will be taken by surprise. Friends, this judgment that Jesus brings is a direct consequence of our sin. The Bible is very clear in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And therefore, because of our sin, we deserve the eternal judgment of God. We do, in our flesh, we don't like that. We don't like to hear that. But wait, aren't, don't I have some good in me? And the Bible says, no, there is no one that is righteous. There is no one that does good. Not even one. And it's not until we come to grips with that that then we're going to look to Christ and to see him as our Savior. We're not going to realize that we need to be saved from judgment if we don't confess the fact that we are sinners in deserving of that punishment. And so friends, there is hope and that hope is found in Jesus Christ. The very one that will one day come and bring judgment today offers himself as a salvation, as a refuge, as a shelter from all people anywhere to turn to him and to find safety and refuge, eternal refuge of their soul in him. By clinging to Jesus as your savior today, you can escape facing him as your judge in that surprising future day when he arrives. But listen, we, if we come to Jesus, we can't just add Jesus to our life. It's not like we're getting what we sometimes joke as fire insurance. Oh, I'll sign the policy. I'll add that to my life. Oh, I got Jesus. Good. And then I'll carry on with my life. And when that day comes, oh, look, I already bought a policy. I'm good. No, Jesus demands that we bow to him as Lord. He says that we must give up everything to follow him. It's not just that we can add him to our lives with with no day-to-day -day significance. He deserves our full commitment and our full affection. And this is where Jesus turns to next in our text. And so let's look at the second reason we can have hope as we wait for Christ's return. And that is that Christ will prove to be the greatest treasure. We can have hope because Christ will save us from sudden judgment. We can also have hope because Christ will prove to be the greatest treasure. Verses 31 through 33. Jesus has already said in this gospel, Luke, gospel of Luke, that for those to follow him, we must forfeit the world. We must renounce all things for the sake of Christ. Jesus said in Luke 14, to remind you, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There is a renunciation that is to take place in every single believer's life, that we let go of it all and we choose Christ. And yet, 
as we do that and we say, yes, Lord, I'm with you. I renounce it all. There's this temptation for us to think that we've chosen Christ and yet we're somehow missing out or we've gotten the bum end of the deal and we look around and it seems like the wicked prosper. It seems like, like the righteous miss out and we, and we see that the Christians are persecuted around the, the globe and we, they're ostracized and we wonder, how is it that I, I really gain with Christ? You, you say, Jesus, if I choose you, that I'm, I'm going to gain, but it seems like we're losing. Is all of this worth it? Is it worth having my possessions confiscated? Is it worth even having my life taken by standing with Christ? And Jesus reminds us that in that future day when he returns, it's going to be clear that it was all worth it to choose Jesus over everything else. When he comes, we don't need to fear about what we're leaving behind. We don't need to fear about what other people had gathered and all the wealth and all the riches and all the things that they seem to ha have in the good life. And we feel like we're missing out on. Jesus says, when I come back, you don't need to go get that stuff. Look at verse 31. He says, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Jesus' warning here is to his disciples that they do not have an attachment to our material possessions. In fact, an overwhelming attachment to material possessions, a life-dominating worship of our material possessions can be spiritually detrimental. Jesus wants our hearts 100% devoted to him. We should not be trying to ride through life with one hand on this world and one hand on Christ, trying to get the best of both worlds. He wants it all. Now in verses 34 and 35 that we'll look at in a minute, his, his saving of his elect seemed to be a sudden event. And so this scenario in 31 where this idea of you're on the house stop and you can't go back in your house and you need to keep going forward I think is a metaphorical image that's meant to help us to see that we don't need to go back and grab our things when it comes to that day all of those things that might be in our house all those things that might be back all of our possessions we can let all of those go because Jesus is our greatest treasure we will have him and that is what our hearts will run to and so we need to remind ourselves of that today because it's today that our hearts can get too clingy with the stuff that we have, with our wealth, with the things that money can buy. And Jesus has warned us all throughout this gospel that we don't seek to build bigger barns to simply accumulate here on this earth, that we recognize there's a future day when our souls will be required of us. And whether we tr tr have treasured Christ is what will be the test. And so he says, at the end of verse 31, that the one in the field should not turn back. We go forward with Christ. Today we're going forward. Tomorrow we're going forward. In that future day we go forward with Christ. And there's never a turning back to what this world has to offer. And so that mention, combined with just talking about Lot, causes Jesus to give us a short warning, but one that we must not miss in verse 32. He says, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Now the story of Lot's wife is a simple one. 
And yet it's a poignant one. In fact, I want you to see this. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19. Here we get into the details of what we talked about just a moment ago about Lot. Looking at the beginning of verse 15. Genesis 19, verse 15. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Now notice the command. He said, Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley to keep escaping to the hills, lest you be swept away. Verse 18, And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor uh, in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness and saved me a my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of that city was Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth, verse 23, when Lot came to Zoar. Then Yahweh reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But look at this, verse 26. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. This is what Jesus references when he says, remember Lot's wife. The instructions were clear. Do not look back. Do not stop. But she does both of these. She stops, she turns around, and she's turned instantly into a pillar of salt. The best that we can surmise from this, both from her actions and Jesus, the context of Jesus' comments, is that she still had an attachment to Sodom. Even though she was leaving, her heart was still back in Sodom. There was something that, was that she longed for back in that city. And so she looked back against the command of these angels, against the command of the Lord, and that disobedience proved deadly for her. And I believe that Jesus wants us to remember Lot's wife because the danger is still pre present for us today, friends. That we need to be pressing on with Christ and yet the danger to look back, the danger to think that this world has something to offer us is ever-present. There are many who claim the name of Christ and yet they have not renounced all. And in that day, it will be shown where their heart truly lies. Friends, we must not look back. We must be like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, who's making its way to the heavenly city, and we do not look back to the city of destruction. That is not where our 
residence lies. That is not where our home is. Our home is in heaven. Our home is with the Lord and we look forward to that day and so we press on ahead treasuring him and treasuring all that belongs to him and renouncing and letting go of all this world has to offer. We must remember this warning. Remember Lot's wife. We should mention this more often to one another. And so I say to you this morning, to you who are looking longingly to the wealth and possessions of this world, remember Lot's wife. To you who look longingly to the, the pleasures of the flesh that this world has to offer, I say to you, remember Lot's wife. To you who look longingly to the praise and the acclaim and the fame that this world seeks to offer for those who find success, remember Lot's wife. And to those of you who are beginning to not just look longingly, but are beginning to dabble and participate in these things of the world, remember Lot's wife. Judgment indeed will come, but today is a day of grace and, and the call of repentance that you might turn today. Jesus says these words, remember Lot's wife, so that you wouldn't experience the same fate as Lot's wife. If you would but turn today and treasure Christ when Jesus comes, he will save his own. He makes it clear in verse 33, look at it with me, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. This reality that if you're seeking to find your life here on this earth and in the things this world has to offer, then you're going to ultimately lose it in that final day. But if you are willing to renounce it all now, and even to the point of losing your life for the sake of Christ, that you will ultimately keep, you will find, you will save your life in that final day because you will know Christ the Savior. But note this, whether you treasure Christ or you treasure your life now, both choices are costly. If you choose Christ, it may cost you your physical life here. It may cost you your reputation, your job, your possessions. The history of the martyrs of the church are proof of that. But the promise is that we'll gain eternal heavenly bliss in Christ's kingdom. But if you choose the pleasures and safety of this life here and now, if you, if you choose to give in to what this world has to offer now and you find safety in, and you don't find the animosity here, just know that that choice is costly too. It's just a delayed cost. It's a cost that will come on that future day. And Jesus asks, in light of that, what does it profit a man if he gained the whole world but forfeits his soul? What does it matter if you gain everything this world has to offer, everything that your heart craves for here? And yet, in that moment, Christ comes and the whole game changes. He's now in control and he, everything goes according to his word. What are you going to do then? Because that is what is coming. We must believe in the reality of a future judgment. But the question is, who do you treasure? What do you treasure? Will you treasure Christ? Because in that future day, when he comes to rescue his own, it will prove that he is indeed the greatest treasure, that there is nothing worth more than him, that if we treasure him now, we'll find safety and security for all of eternity. But if we treasure the things of this life, if we turn around, if we look back, we'll find that we have ultimately lost in the game of eternity. Well, let's look finally at the 
third and final reason that we can have hope as we wait for Christ's return. And it is, thirdly, because Christ will take us to himself. We can wait with hope because Christ will take us to himself. And we see this in verses 34 through 37. He finishes his discourse here by describing uh, how he will save his people on that day. And he gives two scenarios. One takes place in a bed. One takes place at a grinding mill. Both of them are meant to be representative. Not uh, that these are just people going about their daily life. One will be taken and one will be left. I believe that this reference to taken refers to those who will be saved. Those who will be left refers to those who will stay, be left behind or forsaken for judgment. These words left and taken are in the passive, which means that God is the one who ultimately carries them out. And we see how these verbs are used in the book of Luke. In the book of Luke, the word used here for taken is used to describe those who are brought into close relationship. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 10, and chapter 18, verse 31, it talks about him taking the disciples with him. That's a close, intimate relationship. In Luke chapter 9, verse 28, he takes uh, even the subset of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, he takes them with him to the Mount of Transfiguration. On the flip side, the word for left is used in this idea of judgment in being forsaken for judgment. It's used that way in Luke 13, 35 to describe that the nation of Israel has been forsaken or abandoned. It's a word that describes this removal of relationship. And so here we describe this scenario in which people are caring about their normal activities that somewhat carries on with what we saw uh, previously in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. But here, these people are taken. They're taken. And I believe that this description best fits what, with what we know as we put together the doctrine throughout the, uh, the New Testament known as the rapture of the church. Now the word for rapture simply comes from a word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that's translated uh, into uh, Latin and rapturo that we get this idea of rapture from. But it's describing this idea when the church will be brought into communion with Christ on that future day. It'll be sudden, it'll be unexpected, and it'll be a reunion as we looked at briefly last week. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 52 describe this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. There's this sudden changing that we're not, those of us who are alive will suddenly be changed. This coincides also with John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, where Jesus describes the fact that he's going to come back for his disciples. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, get this, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. This word for take is the same word for take that we find in our Luke 17 passage. This idea of taking us to be with himself. And finally, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, again the reference last week. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. So these all describe an event in which the believers of Jesus Christ who are alive at the time of his coming will be suddenly translated up into the air to meet the Lord in the air when he comes to save his people. 
He will take them to be with himself. This is, this is an event of reunion. This is an event of, of relationship. When he is saving his people, it's a personal event. Believer, Jesus Christ has promised to come and get you. You personally. So that you would be with him. He wants you to be with him. And he's promised to come back and do that. And so if we ever forget that fact, if we ever forget that truth, then our hope will die away. If we lose sight of the fact that Christ will come back for us. Now after he saves his church and this rapture event, then he will pour out judgment upon the earth through what is known as the Great Tribulation. And verse 37 in, in Luke 17 closes out Jesus' discourse and, and talks about this judgment. Verse 37 says, And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now this verse has been debated down through church history. There's at least 20 interpretations of what Jesus means here. I'm not going to give you all of those. But uh, here's what I believe to be the best explanation. The disciples have heard all of this that Jesus, Jesus has talked about and they want to ask where this judgment will take place. And so Jesus gives them this proverbial saying that indicates that where vultures are hovering overhead, then you can know something has died. And so when Jesus returns, the place of judgment will be obvious because of the vultures and other birds of prey that will be gorged on the flesh of the bodies of the slain as Revelation 19 verse 21 clearly says. This is a macabre metaphor, but it strikes home the point that there will indeed be a judgment when Jesus comes that will indeed bring about the death of the wicked. And it'll be permanent. But friends, for the church, our great hope lies in the fact that we will not face that judgment. But we serve the living and true God and wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so church, we must set our hope on Christ. We must rest in the promise of his word knowing that he will come to judge the wickedness of this earth. He will not allow it to go run rampant for all of time and he will come to bring us to himself. And on that day, it'll be clear that waiting for him was worth it. That renouncing the things of this world was worth it. That losing our life for Christ's sake was totally worth it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are humbled, we are sobered by the truth of this passage. To recognize that there is a future day that is coming in which you will unleash judgment upon this earth. There are those today that mock whether you exist, that mock whether you will actually do anything if indeed you do exist. But Lord, we trust your word and we know that you will indeed will have the final say. And so Father, we thank you that you have opened our eyes to see the truth of your word and to know that with Jesus, there is life everlasting. Father, I pray for everyone here that you, you know the condition, state of their souls. And I pray that you, Lord, would open their eyes that they may see that they cannot rest upon their own good works, that there is no hope found in their own righteousness, 
but the only hope that we have of surviving that future day is by resting in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray that you would impress that upon our souls this morning. It's in his name we pray, amen.